The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today's show is called From California's Golden Shore to D.C.'s Blue Vision Summit. And that's because my guest is David Helvarg author of Golden Shores, and he's the director of Blue Frontiers. Hi, David. Hey, Rob. Um, so I understand you're having chocolate for lunch today on the West Coast. Yes, we, we live in a world of chocolate and good waves, sunny skies almost all the time. Oh, I'm envious. Well, actually, I'm in sunny, you know, Harvard Square here, so I can't complain. It, it finally has arrived. Um, actually, it feels more like summer than spring, but... Uh... We'll take away whatever we can get here. I've heard lots of kudos about your book. Um, I was impressed to see that Ted Danson liked it. He says, boy, I love this book. As a Californian who spent much time, of, much time of his life talking about and fighting for the protection of our oceans, I really enjoyed reading about my fellow Golden Staters' multifaceted saltwater passion. David Helvard captures in a really readable way the insane, quirky, and head-over-heels love we have for our oceans. So that's a little words from Cheers in Boston here, I guess. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the Cheers connection. It's funny, because Ted's a very active uh, ocean conservationist. Yes. But, but when I talk to people who work on the ocean, even with his organization, with Oceana, they often all say, what, do you, what about Ted Danson's involvement? They go, the guy from Cheers? <laughs> But he, uh, yeah, he, he liked a lot of good reviews. Uh, the Golden Shore is doing well. It's been out a couple of weeks now. And um, so the yeah. subtitle is California's Love Affair with the Sea. So that's part of it. Is, isn't it part of it being a love, like a love letter? Uh, yeah, it's kind of an investigative love letter. Uh, it, it's really what it is, is it's about how the Pacific defines California and how through a long history of uh, and a late maritime frontier, we've had out here how Californians have come to live well with the sea, how we're actually become a model of uh, ocean conservation and protection of our coast and ocean. But it was it was a long and tumultuous uh, road getting there, and, and that's what a lot of the book is. It, it talks about our our history and and what it is that defines us. How you know, California, the most populous uh, state in the nation, over 37 million people, the world's eighth largest economy, uh, how it interacts with the Pacific, which is the largest body of water, covers one-third of our planet, and how the 1,100-mile coastline has really defined us as, as a people, um, you know, for, for bad and for good. 
Yeah, there's nothing like, you know, disaster or losing something to make you wake up and realize how precious things are. You know, we've, we've all heard about um, Cannery Row and the loss of the sardine fishery. And, and you know, the 1969 oil spill really defined uh, California to a large degree mm. um, because it was, I, I mean, you know, there's there's lots of interesting uh, history. It was 40 years after the first rock oil was drilled in Pennsylvania, the first offshore oil was drilled off piers in Summerlin, California. Mm. And Summerlin was one of those spiritualist centers, kind of California Wawa, but the uh, the oil drillers were very secular men and they started dynamiting each other's rigs and uh, would, you know, abandon wells. Yeah, it was it was a rough uh, wildcatting boom and by 1901 the San Jose Mercury News wrote that the town was a slime with uh, oil waste. And so just up the coast, the city of Santa Barbara that was developing around ocean recreation decided that um, yes. they didn't want those oil piers. And it it was 65 years before the federal government convinced the, the local that uh, the technology had so improved that you couldn't have that kind of uh, oil spill again. And the feds were right. It was it didn't have any oil spills for three days. It was the third day that uh, Union Oil was drilling there that they had a big blowout and millions of gallons spilled. And so 69, and, and that year the Cuyahoga River also caught fire in Cleveland. And I think the two images of... Uh, burning water and the oil-covered seabirds in California created the modern and helped create the modern environmental movement. It certainly inspired Californians three years later to uh, vote uh, to create a coastal commission. In 1972, we had an initiative, and that um, Coastal Act really protects. It did two things. It it stopped wild and, and reckless development along the shoreline and also guaranteed the public access to the beach so that you can't go far in California without having a, a public access onto the beach. And in some ways, that's even more important because you protect what you love, and Californians have a sense of entitlement to the beach and ocean. And I think that sense of entitlement is what, what has turned the tide and, and improved the quality of both the quality of life and, and the quality of the water here because, um, you know, because we don't – we have this diversity of, of interest. You know, we have recreation. We value – surfing and recreation as much as commerce and trade in the ports, and you've got this balance between the fishermen and the ports and the Navy and the homeowners and the and the beachgoers. And what I found in, in my travels is usually it's when you have a special interest or single industry dominating coastline that things go wrong. You know, in, in New England, yes. the politicians think the fishermen own the ocean, and the result is there's no cod off Cape Cod. And in Louisiana, they know oil and gas owns the Gulf, and the results that I was flying over the Gulf in 2010 after the BP blowout saw 100 dolphins and a humpback whale dying in oil spills uh, that, that stretched the horizons. And, 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 and the geography I think what, is really interesting because here on the East Coast, you go two blocks and you can't see the ocean. You know, you can live a couple of blocks away in Plymouth or Duxbury or all these towns, Ipswich. Whereas in California, so many of the landscape is pitched toward the ocean. You know, you're certainly if you live near the bay, you're very much aware that you're by the bay. And, and that's changed. I mean, in the 1960s, there were only about six miles of bayfront that was open to the public. Most of it was being mm. filled in as garbage dumps. And, and, and really, protection in California started in the late 50s. The Army Corps, Army Corps of Engineers 
put out a map on how they were going to fill in the other two-thirds of the bay and basically turn it to a wide spot in the Sacramento River. And these three women in Berkeley couldn't get the Sierra Club or any of the terrestrial groups involved, so they formed Save San Francisco Bay, and that was the beginning of this whole populist movement that's over time come to protect uh, not only the coastline, but, uh, you know, promote cutting-edge marine science, protect the critters offshore, and... Uh, yes. And then was that? Our ports and even the Navy, you know, when I went out with the Navy for this book, they took me out to the Macon Island, which is their state-of-the-art amphibious assault ship that has a hybrid propulsion system of uh, turbine and uh, diesel electric that burns one-third the fuel of any other ship of its class. So, of course, they base it in California because they understand that environmentalism is a key value in the state. And even 37 miles of our coastline that's owned by the Air Force at Vandenberg, uh, which is one of the major missile centers, and they fire satellites, rockets, and missiles towards Antarctica. But they have agreement with the Coastal Commission that they can't fire over the Channel Islands during the months of seal pupping season. So this, this very strange mix of militarism and environmentalism that also defines the state. Yes. Well, there's a good combination of, of um, like you said, there's a lot of military in California. And the, and I've seen, I've seen the Navy being very active on the East Coast with uh, national ocean, regional ocean planning, regional ocean planning efforts. Uh, they have a fleet environmental readiness division, and one of their commanders is coming to the meetings and keeping us tied together. But there's a lot of um, overlap between uh, the Navy's need to have a, a good work environment that isn't polluted and, and so forth, and, and, uh, and, and the interests in the uh, community to uh, have Well, and, and they, they see it. I mean, I've talked to Admiral and even the captain of the ship I was on was talking about, uh, you know, climate change as a national security issue. And yes. the Secretary of Navy wants uh, the fleet, the sea services, the Navy and the Marines, to be 50% non-carbon based by 2020, which is very ambitious, but certainly more ambitious than his boss in the White House. But, you know, this is – California's sort of been through these two demographic booms. You know, it was a gold rush and a world war that kind of transformed the golden shore and yes. saw this huge population boom that brought us in into conflict with the urban coast and, and the Redwood Coast. And, you know, right after World War II, two million – uh, soldiers went through California on their way to the Pacific Theater, and another million yes. people came here to work in the war factories. I, I live in Richmond, on just north of Berkeley, Richmond, California, in the Bay, and on the Rosie the Riveter National Park here. My sailboat marina used to be where Kaiser Shipyard Number Two, where they, in four years, built over 700 Liberty ships, and the and the clinic for the workers became the Kaiser Permanently Healthcare System. And then and it was, you know, women. women and African-Americans and Hispanics who, when, when white yeah. workers went to war, it expanded the opportunities for uh, people here. They have a part of the memorial is uh, right outside my uh, my townhouse. There's a prow-like uh, extension over the bay with a plaque quoting one of the rosies that says, putting all modesty aside, if not for us, if not for the women, there'd have been no spring in 45. Wow. And, and so there's this rich history of, of how California managed to turn it around. I mean, you know, we we started in the traditional maritime frontier attitude of of uh, really, yeah, and the gold rush destroyed a lot of the native Californian population and all, you know, and, and there's a comeback there too since, since the occupation of Alcatraz in 1969. California tribes that were decimated during the, you know, 
18th and 19th century have, have reestablished themselves and are fighting in places like, like the Klamath River where they've got an agreement with upstream farmers and fishermen to take down one of the big dams and bring back the salmon. Oh, that's and, great, in the Klamath River, yes. And it's... Um, so, you know, there's there's a hopefulness. I mean, the other thing we did in a frontier mentality is we wiped out, uh, you know, even before the gold rush, we wiped out a million sea otters on the West Coast and, and then went after the whales and chased them down to their breeding lagoons in Baja. And, uh, and when we ran out of the whales, we decimated the northern elephant seals for their oil. And there was a point by the end of the 19th century, they estimated there were 20 to 100 uh, elephant seals left on Guadalupe Island off Baja, and the Smithsonian sent an expedition. They spotted 10 of them, and they shot seven for specimens to take back. To oh, no. Oh, my gosh. And the amazing thing is, over time, as I say, we developed our attitudes changed because we were using the ocean and, and valuing it. We established state and national policies like the Marine Mammal Protection Act and the Clean Water Act, and here in California, we have the White Shark Protection Act. And the combination of making right choices and the resiliency of the Pacific off this coast, where we have the California current, it's like the Serengeti of the sea coming down from the Arctic, and we have one of the world's four great upwelling zones. So every summer it brings plankton to the surface that acts as the pasture for this great web of life. And, and where we once had, you know, 20 to 100 elephant seals, we have 100 30,000 that come back to visit California to molt and breed every year. We have 300,000 elephant seal, I mean, California sea lions and over 30,000 harbor seals hauling up along the protected beaches and the gray whales have, their population's gone up over 20,000. Everybody sort of knows, many people know that, that we have white sharks on the Farallon Islands or that I visited for the book that's, mm. you know, 27 miles outside the Golden Gate and it's kind of like reminded me of visiting Antarctica and, and that it's this wilderness research station, but it's got a San Francisco zip code. And hmm. The day I, days I visited it, there were like 100,000 birds and 10,000 sea lions out there. And in the fall, there's a lot of, when the elephant seals are breeding and the young are back, there's a lot of white sharks there, and people know about that. But most people don't know that the Channel Islands in Southern California is also the main congregation for blue whales, more yes. of more of the largest animals ever live on Earth gather there every spring and summer than anywhere else on the planet. So, so, so great. The largest whale, the blue whale, is can be seen right out of Long Beach in Los Angeles. And it's pretty amazing, yeah, right outside of the America's two largest ports. Um, you know, and, and even the ports themselves have cleaned up their act uh, under the leadership of a visionary woman, uh, uh, Geraldine Nats, who's both the first woman and the first marine biologist to run a major port and she was brought in there you know like seven years ago because nothing was happening there's no expansion of the ports because of lawsuits because there was the highest levels of adult cancer and childhood asthma in the surrounding towns of san pedro and wilmington and long beach and what she did is she she brought together the the la and long beach harbor commissions for the first time since 1924 and and had them pass a cleaner action plan and Air pollution's been reduced 70% since then. Uh, the waters, which was already being cleaned up, is much cleaner now. When I was going through the ports, there were sea lions barking and pelicans. And, and the lawsuits went away, and new terminals are being built. So it really is an example. You know, there's a billion dollars a day of goods that cross those docks, and, 
and it was stymied because of pollution, and now it's expanding again because, you know, when you do right by the ocean, you do right by your economy, you do right by your community, and and that's a lesson that Californians have sort of ingrained, and hopefully that's a lesson uh, we can spread. I mean, Sam Farr, who's congressman yeah. from Monterey, he uh, he used to used to be uh, Leon Panetta's seat before Leon went off to right. Washington, the CIA and the Department of Defense. Sam says that um, California is one of the few places where you can get elected or lose your seat based on your position on coastal protection and offshore oil. And, you know, that's that's a model we'd like to uh, – a lesson and a warning we'd like to take to all our other elected officials around the country. Yeah, yeah, though there's a great awareness of the ties between – you know, healthy oceans and, and the economy of, you know, all that can follow with those things. And in California, you're setting so many good examples of, of that. Um, it's more than relationship. It's a firm, you know, binding of economy and, and quality of life. And, and, and it's always uh, ongoing. I mean, Peter Douglas, who's the late Peter Douglas, uh, who ran, created, and ran the Coastal Commission as executive director for years. He used to say that, you know, the coast is never saved. The coast is always being saved. And a couple of years ago, right before he died of cancer, he was still there, and this delegation from the World Bank showed up. They told him they'd been in the state two weeks. They didn't want to talk to him until they'd done their investigation. They'd been asked uh, to look at, at coastal planning for Korea, and they came to California, and they said two things. One is you have the best coastal protection in the world. But two is we don't understand how, that usually when you have a government regulatory agency, it's captured by the industry it's supposed to regulate within seven years. And they said, how come yours hasn't been? And he said it's because we're transparent, because the, the public comes to us and makes demands and drives coastal protection because it's what what people want that, you know. That yes, they're very active in California and standing up for this stuff. And, and that's that's what it takes. So we have, I mean, it's it's not perfect. You're, if you're in Southern California, you still have to wait 72 hours after rainfall before you want to go surfing because of the polluted runoff. And this year, we've seen over a thousand uh, uh, juvenile California sea lions hauled up on the beach and rescued because they're they're starving, and it's unclear what's driving that. But mm. but the the challenges, as I say, are ongoing. But the basic attitude is. You know, we need to protect this 1,100 miles of ocean and some of its some of the most pristine and lovely ocean. I, I ended my book on the Lost Coast, which is 62 miles of unpaved coastal wilderness. It's the largest coastal wilderness in the U.S. outside Alaska. And you know, at one point there were plans for a big resort development there. And you know, when the Coastal Commission got established, they sent their inspectors to Shelter Cove. Uh, where the where the plan was, and they said, well, 4,500 of your 5,000 planned lots are on, you know, coastal cliffs that slide every rainy season. So yes, David, we're going to take a short break, and then when we come back, um, I'd like you to to read from the end of your book a short passage or something. Okay. okay? Thank you, Rob. That'll be great. Talk to you then. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, I'm talking with David Helvard. And David's the author of a new book called The Golden Shore, California's Love Affair with the Sea. And David, um, how can people learn more about your work or um, contact you if they have questions about any of this? Well, they can just contact me at hellvargetbluefront.org or go to the website of my organization, which is uh, Blue Frontier, but the website's bluefront.org. And, you know, they can see some of my books there and learn about our other activities as a marine conservation policy group. And if people have California observations, be sure to send them to you or something. Oh, yeah. No, I've been getting great uh, response. I, I got a call from a uh, gentleman who's in his late 80s who just liked reading about my body surfing description in the book and told me all about his history body surfing Long Beach before World War II, then he went off and served, and then he came back and hit the beach again. We had some California body surfers come to Boston, and Patagonia had an evening with them with their new book, Come Hell or High Water, I think it's called, and, and our film. And Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I and, saw the film. Very good. Yeah, and so the, Patagonia was great to let the Ocean River Institute um, be the, the charity that was supporting the event, and so we had beer donated, and we put out... Uh, a basket for tips that went to the Ocean River Institute, and um, the the body surfers gave um, some photographs that uh, people bought raffles tickets to that benefited Ocean River Institute and stuff. Um, yeah, we didn't we didn't hit on that, but my the listening audience here really likes surfing. Can you give us a surfing story or tell us something from that wonderful chapter in your book about surfing in California? Yeah, well, it's just. Um... Maybe your body yeah, surfing story. Maybe I, I that's what I open the chapter talking about, well, after talking about my own feeble attempts to imitate a dolphin oh. in the waves. I see. 
I, I talk about how Jack London really brought surfing to California. And what it was is, you know, after his success, he and his wife took the snark, sailed it out to Honolulu, and he saw the surf, first surfers there in Waikiki, and he got up on a board, and he kind of fell in love with surfers the way he'd earlier fallen in love with intelligent dogs like White Fang. Yeah. And he, uh, he actually wrote a letter. He wrote the first article, popular article on surfing in the U.S. for the Women's Home Companion, and then he wrote a letter of recommendation to uh, to George Free, who came to California and was hired. Uh, Henry Huntington hired him to do exhibition surfing in front of the Hotel Redondo in Southern California. There you go. And he also yeah. surfed in front of the competition, the Venice Beach area, and and uh, yeah, trained trained the first hundreds of California surfers that today are hundreds of thousands. Yeah. Wow, from humble beginnings. Uh, you were going to share with us a, a portion near the end of your book. Yeah, just just the ending. I, I was talking before about you know the Lost Coast of Northern California and how uh, it's it's really wilderness. And I I went to Shelter Cove, which today is just about 500 houses, and where they were once going to have a world class golf course is just a an airstrip through the middle of town and a nine hole course at the end with some drunks and buzzards and deer. While I was there. And, <laughs> waited for this pilot for a day we were socked in and then he flew down the second day and we flew out and over the lost coast which was spectacular all i wanted to do we were on the headphones all i wanted to do is take notes and pictures and joe kept telling me the pilot how marijuana oil cured his skin cancer because of course you're up in humboldt county so that's the chamber of commerce rap you're going to hear but Hmm. we went south past a place called mistake point which i'm sure has a not happy story and then we Turn north, and the very end of the book, I say that up ahead beyond Humboldt Bay, you can see a wall of gray weather front from the Arctic building up. We climb to 2,500 feet as turbulence begins to kick in, and the coast flattens out below us. We pass over the wide, wandering mouth and alluvial plain of the Eel River. The mighty Eel, Joe grins, and I'm impressed by all the cattle and dairy farms spread out around Ferndale. This is a real farm dell where there's 80 to 100 feet of river, t- river silt topsoil, he explains. And we fly over Humboldt Bay in the harbor entry with its twin jetties and miles of breaking surf on either side, looking across the Samoa Peninsula towards the small city of Eureka, before we back around and head back over the mountains to Shelter Cove. And turning south under spreading cloud cover broken by shafts of radiant sunlight, looking at the approaching wilderness cliffs and sea rocks, contrasting starkly against the dazzling bright silver sea, I take a slow, cool breath, feel a sense of wonder and transcendence that moment of connectedness you sometimes get being part of something larger than yourself. And looking out across the curve of the Pacific, I'm reminded of all the connections that link those who go down to the sea and those who work and play upon its waters and those who remember lost the sea and those who are redeemed by it and so feel compelled to give something back. And thanks to luck, history, and lots of good stewardship, it seems to me at this moment that our sacred blue marble planet shines just a little brighter here along California's golden shore. Hmm. Well said. I've enjoyed your other books, and I highly recommend that people take a look at David Helvarg's The Golden Shore, California's Love Affair with the Sea. And, and David, I'm going to be seeing you in um, about less than two weeks, I guess. Less, less than two weeks in D.C. at our Blue Vision Summit. Um, you know, so tell, tell the listeners what that's all about. This is about... Um, well, you know, I think things are working pretty well in California, but overall we're not doing all we need to restore the blue in our red, white, and blue or, or blue marble planet beyond. So 
a lot of what Blue Frontier, my organization, does is, is try and identify and bring together what we call a CWE, the Marine Grassroots Citizen Groups from around the nation. And every two years, we come together with folks like Rob and hundreds of others like him, kind of leaders and, and activists in uh, ocean conservation, and come together with marine scientists and explorers and policymakers in D.C. and and, and strategize and get together and, and occasionally in the evenings might even drink like fish and do more strategizing. And, and then this year we'll be having our uh, Capitol Hill Ocean Day on May 15th, which is open to the public, where hundreds of us will go up on Capitol Hill and, and meet with our elected officials and let them know that uh, that the ocean matters and that, that people understand the value of a healthy ocean coast and the communities that depend on them. So we'll... Uh, We'll do that, and we'll the next day we'll we'll meet with Congressman Sam Farr, who I mentioned from California, and talk about you know how we keep the momentum going. I mean, we're gonna sort of bookend uh, the summit May 13th to 16th with uh, two of our ocean heroes. Open it with Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island, also known as the Ocean State, and uh, and then end it with Sam Farr of California. And in between, lots of uh, you know. Lots of activity and excitement and, and inspiring folks like, like Dr. Sylvia Earle, who's known as her deepness, and Jane Lubchenco, who's a marine ecologist who ran NOAA for the last four years, the National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration, uh, marine artists like Wyland, who paints giant whale murals around the world, and Jim Toomey, who does the Sherman Lagoon cartoon strip. Yeah. And, and, and you know, just, just get together and talk about the things we think are important, you know, on, on – uh, how to respond to disasters and how to make climate a blue issue and youth leadership. We're going to have dozens of young people coming in, young marine activists and, and future maritime workers and divers and scientists coming in from New York and Florida and California and, and Colorado, even the teens for ocean group from Colorado, along with the Colorado ocean coalition. So, you know, they, they understand that, uh, even 5,000 feet above sea level, we're, we're all coastal states in a sense. Yeah, well, nobody has worked harder for these blue – this is the fourth one, and nobody has worked harder to bring these about than you have, David Helvarg, and we're very grateful for that. Uh, and recently, we had a meeting in Rhode Island for the Regional Ocean Policy Planning Process, and it was a fascinating meeting because we had it in Narragansett, Rhode Island, so that the Native Americans, the uh, Narragansett and the uh, Mashpee Indians from uh, Cape Cod and, and uh, the Mi'kmaq from Canada and, and the U.S., they, they straddle the borders so they don't have any problems going being two nations because they're their own nation. Uh, and they had this wonderful conference. Uh, we had this get-together in Narragansett, which is the state of... Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, and so on the last day, Senator Whitehouse came in, and he gave this eloquent speech, as he does, he's really great to listen to, and then I had the audacity to say, Senator, what the heck can people do to help Congress, you know, move legislation that funds ocean planning, and he got right to the point, he said, legislators need to hear their constituents say they care about oceans, because Otherwise, it doesn't appear on their radar. You know, they assume their con their constituents care about you know parking places and things like that. And and so, it's and this is what your blue vision does is that you bring people to Washington, and we walk the hills 
we walk the hill of power there. We go to the Senate buildings and the House buildings, and uh, you will never see happier legislators than when a constituent walks in and says, I'm here to talk about oceans, because they're so relieved they don't have to talk about sequestration or whatever the gripe of the week is and stuff. So this is really great what you're doing. Well, and, and also it's... Um you know, it's as you say, it's it's different when when we uh, last two years ago we were meeting with some Congress people at the end of our meetings. We said, "And what can we do for you?" And that yes. that set them back. Um, but I think you know they're also impressed because their constituents are coming from all over the country. We're not paid lobbyists. We we fly our own way in there. We're you know we're dedicated, and also we bring a lot of young people on the hill. Which uh, I remember the last time there was we were meeting with a. Uh, a Congress member, a, a Republican, actually, was pretty conservative and sort of giving boilerplate. And this young 17-year-old Puerto Rican diver from the Harbor School in New York who's training to be a science diver, and he, he very politely pointed out, he said, you know, if the bay's too polluted for me to be working in, then I don't have a future. And it kind of set this man back, and he started, instead of just giving boilerplate, he started listening to what this young pe- person and other people had to say. And I think, you know, that that it's both we do have, you know, we're not only trying to educate our elected officials, but also supporting a couple of ocean champions who are there on the Hill. And, and the night after our Hill Day, we have our sixth annual Peter Benchley Ocean Awards. And that's that's kind of looking at people who prove that solutions are possible and that we can, what we need to do is scale up things that are working to the global level. I mean, this, this year we're giving the... Uh, Actually, I believe Senator uh, Whitehouse will be giving the award for uh, national stewardship. Uh, we have President Macky Sall of Senegal, who kicked out foreign fishing fleets from his waters last year after his election. And, and immediately, within months, thousands of local fishermen and their families were benefiting from increased catches that they wow. had seen in the generation. And, and now the next move is to, to learn to do a sustainable domestic fishery. And uh, our, our policy person this year is actually Massachusetts' Ed Markey, who's been an outstanding advocate for sustainable fisheries against offshore oil drilling. He was a real uh, gadfly when BP was uh, oiling the Gulf. And we have, you know, media winners and, of course, a youth winner every year. Um, so these are people, you know, this year's youth winners also organizing our, our young person's uh, plenary, a uh, big, big, meeting to educate the rest of us on what young folks are doing. And Sean, you know, went to work in high school at the Moat Marine Lab. He was interning there, and then he, he was a recreational fisherman, but he realized all these fishermen were throwing their plastic line in the water. So he developed these spools for fishermen, and then he got all the marinas in the state to uh, install disposal for fishing line and all the, you know, younger kids to make these spools. And then he organized the first... Uh, the Youth Ocean Summit in Florida, and and you know at 20 he's he's a dedicated activist, and we have these models of of people and efforts. I, I talked earlier in the book about Geraldine Nats. She was one of last year's uh, Peter Benchley winners for solutions for cleaning up the port, and now she's leading a global greening ports movement. So these are all uh, you know inspiring folks. We have eight winners this year. Um, we, we named it the Peter Benchley Ocean Awards because, of course, Peter was a keynote speaker at our first Blue Vision Summit in 2004. Well, you must I remind think, people that he wrote Jaws and all that stuff. 
Yeah, I think most people know him for having written Jaws, and they don't, they're not aware that he spent most of his life actually working for the protection of, of sharks and marine habitats. And so by naming the world's leading marine conservation award after Peter, it, it sort of is also a chance to educate folks that, that he really wasn't happy that the result of Jaws was a blockbuster movie that inspired a lot of people to go out and kill sharks. Oh, but the other result was we have more shark scientists who were inspired by that movie than anything else. You talk to shark scientists, they'll tell you that's how they got into the science. Yeah, it's very funny. I'm, I'm watching <laughs> old DVDs now of Sea Hunt, which, yeah. uh, which Lloyd Bridges, there he goes. Mike Nelson, Underwater Frogman, and <laughs> and this came out in the early 60s, late 50s, early 60s. Yeah, I used to watch it. I remember that, yeah. But it was, but it's like like with Jaws, it inspired a whole generation, a cohort of of uh, ocean explorers and scientists who, uh, because this was our first views of underwater footage, even before the Cousteau special started appearing on TV. Right. So let's get back. So Wendy Benchley will be there. Wendy Benchley will be there. Um, Sylvia Earle will be the MC this year, and um, the the statues themselves are these beautiful. Mantis statues designed by the marine artist Wyland, and even that's based on a story where in the early 80s, um, Peter was down filming with American sportsmen TV crew sharks in the Sea of Cortez, and this giant mantis showed up, and, and uh, cinematographer's wife saw it was, its, its wing was ensnared with fishing line, and she dove down and cut the line away where it was infected. And the manta came back and gave her a ride, and then for three days it would just keep coming under the boat and mm. giving Peter and others rides uh, until it mm. went away. And that inspired his his novel, The Girl of the Sea of Cortez. And so, well, we shouldn't be, you know, taking rides on sharks or turtles or anything, but this this manta was clearly, you know, understood that it had been helped by these critters and let let the critters play with it for a few days. And right, the manta just, was asking for it. <laughs> I think, you know, it, it's funny. I think it, it was uh, not unlike just a year or two ago when a whale here off California was entangled and this dive boat came up and divers got in the water and managed to disentangle it from all this fishing line, ropes. Yes. And, and, and afterwards, this gray whale came up and it just went sort of around the circle and touched every one of the people who'd helped cut it free. Yeah. So I think there really is, you know... We underestimate what's in the ocean, and we, we don't, you know, what we don't know is, is far greater than what we've learned, but we keep learning things, amazing things, and discovering new life forms, you know, the vampire squid and walking sharks and the right. intelligence and sociability of whales and cetaceans. And, uh, but it also comes back to your first statement that in order to save the California coast, you have to love it. And, you know, people love animals that they save, and they feel a response from them, and it makes such a difference. You know, Raffi was so upset about um, toxic poisoning in, in marine mammals that he wrote Baby Beluga because he understood that people had to love the whale before they want to save it. Um, and, and people yeah, in, in, inside, you know, it's hard to save the ocean from a concrete-covered swamp, which is what Washington, D.C. is. But, but you know, when people get together and bring their concerns to uh, to the people they elected, I think it's it's important that uh, that that we do this, and and also that we absolutely. It's vital that we tell people that the legislators that we care about the oceans because that they think you know we only care about social security and stuff like that.
Well, it, you know, I mean, I mean, the oceans give us so much in terms of, you know, recreation and transportation and trade and energy and security and and medicinal promises and and mostly just that sense of awe and wonder a lot of us have when we walk the seashore that that it makes sense we we need to give something back you know that that um yeah and, and that's that's what we try and do with the blue vision summits with the peter benchley ocean awards where you know as you know i'm looking forward to seeing you and hey, well, we're going to talk now. more about it right after this break The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI Actions and Events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, I'm talking with seaweed rebel David Helvarg. Uh, Blue Frontiers. And David, we're talking about a Blue Vision Summit uh, in Washington, D.C. What are the dates and how can people get involved? The dates are the evening of Monday, May 13 to Thursday afternoon, May 16. And, and we're doing it in the, you know, during the week because that's when Congress is in session so that on Wednesday we'll make sure that no, no congressman or woman or senator has an excuse not to be there when we bring our delegations up on the hill. And the easiest way to find out more, we've got over 200 registered. We've got room for up to 400. Uh, folks can just go to bluefront.org, and you'll see right on the homepage where it says Blue Vision Summit 4. You can get lots of information on who will be there and the speakers and uh, the events and, uh, you know, everything from the parties to the plenaries and, and the Hill Day and the Benchley Awards. Um 
it's it's you know it's important that we both celebrate the seas and also build the you know what frustrates me is is you know you look at the disasters in the ocean from industrial overfishing uh, pollution uh, coastal sprawl and climate change we know what the solutions are it's it's not that we don't know the answers it's that we don't have the political will to enact them and and so we need to periodically remind our politicians both locally and nationally that uh, that we care and we care enough that if they don't do right by the ocean there'll be consequences yeah for many politicians it's the first time they've heard that someone cares about the ocean other than fishermen and right. uh, so it's very important please register at uh Bluefront.org, ASAP, because we right now are sorting out, you know, the groups that will go to meet with the legislators. You know, so you'll have maybe some people in a, in a neighboring state, and you'll make a group, and we'll meet with senators and representatives, uh, congressional representatives from those, from your state and from some colleagues' state. So you'll right. go around as a group, maybe four people, uh, with a group leader, and um, it's – but we please it, need it, to know who the people are, you know, and poor David's worried about, you know, having enough food out and stuff. So please, please register first and then uh, <laughs> buy later or something. Uh, please, we, we need to know um, who's coming so we can get things set up for you. And, and it'll be a fun day. We're going to start on, on, on the Senate side with greetings from uh, senators from Rhode Island and Hawaii and uh, also a couple of Congress folks uh, – Lois Gibbs and, and Jared Huffman and uh, a few others from uh, California and, and other states. Um, so, you know, it's also a boom for them. They're, you know, a handful of people in the House Coastal and Ocean Caucuses and the, and the, uh, and the Senate Ocean Caucus that uh, they don't feel a lot of love a lot of the time. And so, you know, we, we let them know uh, last time we were there, we are meeting with the uh, – uh, Senator Reed's staff, uh, and uh, they were going, well, we don't know much about, you know, this national ocean policy because the White House don't communicate well with us, and we don't know who's behind it. And we looked around the table and said, we're behind it. You know, we're, we're the constituency. It was it was activists and business people and, and a couple of surfers and recreation sailors, um, and we were sitting at the table and, and sort of oddly acting as a link between this White House ocean policy, which is being implemented, and uh, is pretty common sense policy, and the Senate, which doesn't know a lot about it, and the House, which has some uh, Republican opposition to it, mainly because uh, President Obama's behind right. it, I think. And That's President Obama's, right. So they don't want more big government, and they think that having meetings, having regional meetings constitutes big government, so we can't fund having local regional meetings. But it's really important, as David's saying, as you're saying, to uh, to meet with your legislator and meet with other legislators because um, that way you find out how do they get connected to oceans. So for Senator Harry Reid, the best way was to find out um, who his favorite seafood chef is, that actually his daughter works for a chef in a seafood chef in, in back in Utah, so or Nevada, and uh, you know, so it's important to talk to people, legislators, and find out how are they linked back to the ocean. Because if you're an inland state, it isn't always obvious. Well, but and yet everybody has that link. I I uh, was speaking in Colorado uh, on my book tour, and I said, you know, how are we linked to the ocean? Well, let's take a deep breath and consider it. Oh yeah, over half the oxygen we're inhaling comes not from 
the rainforest, but from the phytoplankton in the ocean. And, uh, you know, I, we, we did an earlier book. I did a, wrote it, and it was illustrated by Jim Toomey to Sherman's Lagoon, 50 Ways to Save the Ocean. Yes, wonderful book. And the idea is that everything we do every day has an impact on the seas around us. And turns out when you do right for the ocean, you tend to be doing right for yourself, for your pocketbook or your health or your sense of well-being. And very easy messages, although it gets harder to communicate them when special interests get in the way. So the oil and gas industry opposes the uh, the, the president's national ocean policy. Essentially, creates a level playing field. Since there, since oil and gas already seems to own the field, they're they're not happy about it. Right. And some of the people, they you know, the Republican head of the House Resources Committee, Doc Hastings says that this is part of a U.N. plot and that this is, you know, a big government that's going to steal jobs. Well, yeah, and he's telling uh, cattlemen in Montana that ocean people are going to tell them how to treat their fields and stuff. Right, and, and it's, it's <laughs> that sounds to me more like what the cattle put out of their south end. Yeah, um, well, that's the concern is that ocean people stuffing up the south end of cattle on you, and that's not nice to do, I guess. Uh, I, I think, you know, but again... Uh, Doc Hastings' major campaign contributor is the oil and gas industry, and so it sort of goes back to what the writer Upton Sinclair said. It's it's hard to understand something if your salary depends on your not understanding it. Well, he misses um, the message because the cattle farmers are also fishermen in the rivers of Montana, and they understand that they shouldn't let you know nitrogen of whatever form get into the rivers, um, let alone flow to the sea. They see it right there, so... Um, right. I mean, one, one of the films things we're going to show, which is what you're doing, is getting the word out about how it's all connected and stuff. Right. One of the films we're showing at the summit, Ocean Frontiers, gives examples of sort of common sense ocean policy, including uh, where shrimp fishermen from the Gulf of Mexico go up and visit with with farmers in the Midwest, and they talk about how the, you know, the surplus synthetic fertilizers and, and pesticides wash off the fields into the rivers, follow gravity into the Mississippi, and grow the second crop every spring of, of uh, algae in the Gulf of Mexico, which then creates this massive dead zone. And the fishermen explain that their livelihoods are at risk, and the farmers are beginning to get that all that surplus fertilizer is just a uh, waste, and, and they're losing money and creating waste downstream, which they don't want to do. And so you begin to get these collaborative processes going. And, and that's, yeah, that's really a wonderful we're... story where they take the fishermen, they take the farmers from the middle of the country, they take them fishing in the Gulf of Mexico. And so the fishermen, the farmers go back and say, we're going to dig swales to keep, you know, the uh, runoff from getting into the rivers because we want to go fishing again, you know. It's really cool the way we could connect people, and, and there are those connections. And per, I mean, personally, I think between that exchange that's been going on, you know, where the fishermen go up and visit the wheat fields in Iowa, the corn fields, yeah. and the and then the farmers get to go fishing on the Gulf. I think the farmers have the better of that deal. But Oh, uh, yeah. But the neat but thing is the farmers tell their neighbors about how important it is. And so you only have to take a few farmers to make a big difference on the farming community. Um, and that's what we're trying to do in Florida, where we see dolphins are dying from too much nitrogen going into the water. Is We're trying to get people to understand that why they have to change their practices on the land for the betterment of the ocean. And people have trouble relating to an ocean because it's out of sight, and they have even more trouble relating to these dead zones, you know, like they have a multi-state one in, in the Gulf of Mexico. But they do understand, as you said in the first part of the show, image, you know, individual animals. So if you're losing fish, 
and and you mentioned the seabirds, you know, those, those oiled seabirds that came out of the um, California oil spill is um, unforgettable. Yeah, and, and and now the dying manatees in uh, right in Florida, you know, and and we see where you have these natural phenomena like red tides, but they're unnaturally fed by a fertilizer runoff and other synthetic. You have, you have to show the connections, and that's where, where it gets tricky. Right, but, but it also um, gets fascinating. But the manatees, you know, we lost last summer. We saw the worst die-off of seagrass in Indian River Lagoon. Eighty percent of the seagrass, fifty square miles, gone. And now we're finding manatees that used to eat seagrass, 120 dead manatees with marine algae in their stomachs. So, you know, it, it's pretty obvious that the seagrass is needed for the manatees to live. Uh, what's not so obvious of is, is it uh, nitrogen runoff or some other pollutant that killed the seagrass? But either way, you know, it, it shows that, uh, uh, you know, the philosophy is, as you said earlier, too, is stewardship. We just have to learn to be better stewards. And... Um, you know, too often people do this equation in their head, this mathematics in their head about number of people means amount of pollution. And if that country has more people, then they're going to be as polluted as we are if they approach our population. And, and as you showed us in California, that you can grow and diminish pollution at the same time. It's, it's about awareness and action. And I think one of the, the neat things of having a focus on youth leadership at, at our upcoming summit is talking to so many of these young people who understand the connections, I mean, very young, you know, teenagers, and and, uh, and, and yet they, they both see the connections between all these things, and yet they still have the passion to believe, and I believe with them, that they can correct them, that, you know, that the the solutions aren't that difficult, but we need to make the choices. It's, it's like with energy. I mean, the only money we won't accept is from the oil, gas, and coal industries, because you know, we can work, and we're going to have commercial fishermen at the summit. We've, we've got representatives from the shipping industry. We can work with all the offshore interests except, unfortunately, oil and gas, because even if they don't pollute the waters, uh, it's kind of product liability. Their product uses directed overheats our planet, acidifies our ocean, and it's, it's just time to move on. I visited um, offshore oil rigs, and, you know, I feel like I'm visiting a whaling ship in the 1850s. You know, it's it's neat hanging out with the roughnecks and roustabouts and describing their maritime work, but it's time it became part of our maritime history. We moved on. Coal and oil were the cutting-edge energy systems of the 16th and 19th century. We're in the 21st, and and you know, and and these are these are the questions we will be raising uh, week after next. You know, how we make climate a blue issue, and 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 inf- really get the public informed on how. The greatest impacts from climate change are going to be along our coasts and in our ocean, and what we can do about that. Well said. So, um, so that's why we're coming to Washington, right? I mean, and, and it's people like you who are working in Massachusetts, who are working down in, in you know, in the Indian uh, River, River Lagoon, Lagoon and the Florida coast. Uh, we're getting folks from Alabama. It's pretty funny. Uh, last time after our Hill Day. We had report backs, and uh, uh, Kelly Castaway, who's the Mobile, Alabama baykeeper, she stood up and said, I'm jealous of you Californians. You have people who support you. We've got to deal with some hard opposition. Great. Um, I'm glad you guys are coming out of California to the East Coast. David, we're out of time. Can you give us a plug for your book one more time? 
Yeah, it's the Golden Shore, California's love affair with the sea, and you can get it on Amazon or even better at your local independent bookstore. There we go. And if you want to know more about Blue Visions, and please come join us, what do you do? Just go to bluefront.org, and, and we've got all the agenda and everything laid out right there for you. David Helvard, uh Seaweed Rebel of Blue Frontiers, thank you very much for Rob taking Moore, the time to explain you. how we're going to save the oceans. Take care. Yeah, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Rock, rock, rock.